Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Linux, episode 202. It's hard to come up with a unique title. Recorded August 23rd, 2015, and brought to you by Element Opie Productions. ElementOpie.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Linux show that's not about Linux, but about life in the context of Linux. I am your host, Mark, the Sultan of the Soapbox Cockerel, and joining me this week, as always, are your two stalwart co-hosts, Chris, the command line godfather, Neves, and Seth, the gooey kid, Anderson. Hello, gentlemen. Well, hello, Mark, and everyone out there in the lovely audience that we have. Bring your questions. We might have answers. Mark, you need just a little bit more whining uh, <laughs> when you came up with that title. It was good on the yeah. fly, but, you know, next time, it's hard. So, uh, <laughs> but I was going to go to Tashi Station and pick up some power converters. With my friends. <laughs> so. Mark Hamill to this day defends his reading of that line, saying he was trying to get across how, how immature Luke Skywalker was. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a reverse uh, of... of a revision of history there. I don't know. I thought bit. he was pretty immature. Yeah. So, I actually, I mean, I thought it fit the situation. So it did. Yeah. I mean, it it was the story of of Luke Skywalker going from a, a whiny kid to a whiny adult. Um, I mean, but through the three episodes, he became you know he came into his own and he right. became. Mm-hmm. But that first show, he was still pretty much a brat. Uh, you know, we used to bullseye womp rats at not at that distance. They're not much bigger than two meters. Yeah. Oh, hey, anybody days. who can become a Jedi Master on a, on the trip on the trip that takes like four point three parsecs. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so that's the. I think we may have had that discussion before. Uh, how long did that movie take? In my mind, it was always uh, you know like a couple of years. But I've heard other people say the whole movie takes place in like five days. Uh, and it's interesting because you don't really get any time references. In the movie, it's this thing happens yeah. and this thing. This, but in my mind, it had always been months, if not years, of of training. Uh, you know, in between the two things. What What did you take away? Obviously, Seth, you thought it took place in a very short period of time. Yeah, I mean, yeah, his trip from from the time Luke gets involved, you know, till he's doing whatever was just a couple of days. I thought. A couple of months tops, but I didn't see how it was a long period of time. There was too much uh, of it building on top of each other for it to have been a, a long period of time. See, I always, in my mind, he stayed with Ben for a long time, and then it was a long journey across Tatooine to Moss Eisley. Uh, and then that took a while. I mean, that did, that went quickly. But then in the ship with the Millennium Falcon, they're they're avoiding the the Empire and they're snaking around and and, and that. And so that that took a while. And then the trip to Alderaan, uh, or where Alderaan should have been, took a while. Um, that in my mind, those things added up in in week increments, uh, even month increments, not days. Chris, what about oh. you? I looked at it when I was watching, and I've rewatched it a couple of times. With my son just recently, and we had this discussion. And this, what we both kind of took away from it, it was maybe quarter of a year, maybe you know, maybe four months. Um, it just never felt like it had any. There was no like, oh, remember that time? You know, there's no thought back. Right. You know, it was all. It felt like it was all current information all the way through. All right. That, that's just. I don't know why I felt so differently. But I, 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 I'm curious to see audience. Am I in the minority there? Did you all think it took place in a few days to a few weeks at the most? Um, 
Because I guess my thing was you can't get that good at the force that fast. And so maybe that well, in, made me uh, retroactively add time to things. He's a prodigy, he Mark. Just that good. Huh? That's true. You never know. I mean, in, in the Sarah Connor Chronicles, the, the hacker kid can be advanced in time five years and still be a genius in top of the field. So uh, just because he, like, I don't know, he read a blog or something. They said, oh, yeah, here's <laughs> what I need to update my skills. Bam. Like a boss. Which, which, which one did that come out of? The Sarah Chronic, the um, the Terminator series, they like a they TV went series. In, a TV I, they series. went forward. I vaguely in time. remember that. Yeah, they went forward in time, like from the, um, like the initial the initial show, and then at the end of the the pilot, they like went forward a couple of years, and he's still this uh, uber cy- or uh, you know cyber genius type person. That was the. The one with the female Terminator. Uh, yes. I can't remember yep. the actress's name. Yeah. I, I, w- I casually watched that. If it was on, I watched it. I didn't make an appointment to watch it. I didn't DVR it. But it was like, yeah, if it's on, I'll turn it on. Um, that just wasn't enough to get my attention. You you watched it probably more than I did then. I mean, when I mean, the Terminator's... One episode. When the Terminator crosses some amount of dozens of miles without a head to find his own head... Um, he kind of lost me right there. Yeah. I mean, it, it, true, the CPU doesn't have to be in the head, and in fact, that's kind of a dumb place to put it. You should put it in the chest where that's the most uh, uh, protection or distributed throughout the body, different nodes. You know, I get that. Uh, so you, he doesn't have to have the head. But how did he find his own head? Radio Wi-Fi. waves. Wi-Fi. <laughs> <laughs> he had a geosynchronous <laughs> location in it. So his his the... Each part of his body sends out a homing signal if it's lost. So would the hand crawl back to him if the hand got cut off? RFID well. is everywhere, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> it's the cell phone it's tracking little... that we've been talking about. It's, it that's is. the danger. The, the Terminator will find his own head. Pretty much. That's, that's pretty much how they, they worded that, didn't they? Yeah. All right, so I wanted to uh, use the vast uh, power of our audience to. I got a I got a weird thing happening. I've got a Zoom H1 handy recorder. It's been a few years old. Um, last week, uh, it glitched out on me. Uh, showed that the hard drive, the the SD card in it was full before it was. So I reformatted it, and it seems to be working fine. It's recording and, and all that stuff. Except, did I hit the record button? Yeah, I did. Okay, so it's recording and doing that. But weirdly, the display now is like showing every character on the screen. You know, it's an LED display, so there's everything that can make every character is, like, ghosted, and then the actual characters are are brighter, or darker, I guess is the way to put it. And and the end result is I can only look at it from an angle just to read it, uh-huh. uh, which is fine because as I sit here using it most of the time, I'm looking at it askance. But I don't know something about reformatting it from the Linux machine. Maybe I should have reformatted it from a Windows machine. Caused that. So, audience, have you ever heard of that? It's, it's, it doesn't hamper the uh, overall functioning of it. But like today, I had to reset the time on it because I had let the uh, the power too long, and I had to like tilt it at just the right angle. It was sort of like you know playing one of those table games where you roll the ball into the holes just to kind of be able to see it while I'm pushing buttons. Hmm. That's an interesting one. Um, nope. I don't know anything about it. So is that like the screen where you're um, like looking at the picture that it's 
recording. Right. It's it's it sort of looks like burn in, but yeah, it only yeah. happens when it's powered on. Oh, I was going to say, have you tried maybe with leave it on for a little bit, pointed at just a white piece of paper or something super white, um, and oh, see. Because that is the actual fix for some TVs where that happens. If you get kind of burn in, you just play white for a few hours and it kind of corrects. No, no, itself. it's not a camera. It's a it's a video recording device, an audio recording device. It's it's a display like a oh. digital clock. Uh, oh, okay. Like a, that kind of LCD, cheap uh, gray monochrome LCD display. Oh, I got nothing. <laughs> and yeah, so you know how when you're looking at a clock. You can see all the numbers, but only part of it's lit up. You know, so right. it's an eight, but only one side of the eight is lit up to make a sure. one. This one, I can see everything slightly turned on, but not fully bright. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, weird. Hmm. So it's that, my backup yeah. recorder, so it's it's not critical. And as long as it's working, is I'm not. It's not important enough for me to spend fifty bucks to go get another one. But it right. is an odd thing. And this audience seems to like odd things. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe someone's got the fix in their back pocket and they just need to send it in. And I, I suspect the fix is plugged into a Windows machine. <laughs> um, Which would go great for our everyday little next podcast. <laughs> yes. um, Seth, now that you've got bandwidth, might you be joining the League of the Cord Cutters? You know, I am... Uh, we were talking a little bit on this pre-show. I have... Uh, when Netflix or when The Walking Dead first came out, I was kind of, meh. I didn't really care. It didn't grab me. But I've been watching it as they've been doing their marathon. And their, I love it how their seasons are like five or six shows long. But I, I'm really getting kind of caught up in it. And I kind of want to go back and watch it from the beginning, all of them in order. So I could see myself getting or renewing my subscription to Netflix and throwing yet more money away and becoming more of a slave to the man. It is what it is. Seth, when you do cut the cord, there are some things you will miss. Just uh, I would still have I still have to have satellite for my dad to watch Fox News um, on the TV. Okay. Um, so it, I, I wouldn't be cutting the cord. I would just be adding another bill. You know, the American way. <laughs> ah, yes. so. There you go. See, we cut the cord here, and the only thing that we so far have found hard to replace is football. Everything else seems to have, you know, either an online stream or a the next day stream. But who wants to watch football the next day? You know, as like a, a, a afterthought. I, I discovered so far, last week a resource for that, Chris. It's entirely illegal, uh, oh. but if you're interested. Um, the, I can tell you how to find. Um, <laughs> what's interesting is it's illegal, and there's a guy charging you for it. Uh, so what? it can it can kind of make you feel good if you want to say, "Well, I'm paying for this." Um, but is he offering to indemnify you against? Yeah. What the the website? And I'm not going to say the name, but it, it sounds like it might be officially sanctioned. And then you go to the website, and there's like the the logo, and a login blank, and that's that's it. So as soon as I saw that, I was like, "Oh, that doesn't look officially sanctioned." Because at first, I was like, it, it, "The you know the Google search box makes it sound reasonable," um, and because you're paying for it, oh, okay, great, you know. Um, but then it's like there's nothing there but a login and a, and a sign up. 
There's no about. There's no information. There's no terms and conditions. Um, so then I started doing a little more research, and essentially a guy is, has hacked uh, a, a, another legal app and has made the, the data streams available uh, through an app that he made. So, uh, mm. you know, uh, but if you're interested and if you're not, if you don't care so much about... Um, is it Roku-friendly? Yes, there is a Roku <laughs> app for it. That's awesome. I am so surprised it's not off the market yet. Well, that's that's what's interesting, but it looks like... Well, I don't know. I, but, yeah, there's apps for both uh, mobile, I, I don't, maybe Windows too, but definitely uh, iOS and, and Android and Roku, and uh, it plugs in. There's Kodi plugins for, for XBMC people and, and stuff like that. And, and, and this guy or group of guys are, are making these apps and selling these apps, and you've got a subscription service that you pay for, all for they completely illegal you content. Know that guys. That's true. I'm, I'm, I'm showing my sexism there. Most criminals are guys, apparently. Um, <laughs> I, I was impr- uh, impressed by the just utter audacity of it. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of impressed with it because that takes balls. The giant cojones. So, again, you're assuming they're guys, too, yeah. Chris. Man, y'all are, would, like, yeah. some sexist people. Are women not smart enough to be hackers in y'all's no. world? They're just not devious that's, enough. <laughs> oh, that's not – no, that's not right either. Come on, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I I downloaded the part of the stream that does uh, NFL Network and Red Zone because I get both of those legally, so that made me feel okay about it. And the quality is – darn near perfect and it streamed to me I, I had the nfl network on my satellite up and i had this on my laptop and it was about 90 seconds to um, to two minutes delayed but everything was there and i was just really impressed by that um but mm-hmm. again because i don't want to condone this do your own google search um <laughs> it's out there you just need yeah. to find it it's three letters a number and two letters um so it, that wouldn't be hard to figure that out. And no, it's it's no. specifically for mobile apps, so you could probably figure out the last two letters. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you, uh, when I first called you on the Hangout, you, you answered from your other house. So you're busy about moving in? Uh, we were finishing up all the last touch-up paint and all the stuff, you know, so we could start moving all our gear over. Um, so yeah, I'm still trying to figure out how I'm going to get network to my new place because, uh, it's an old home and the room that was deemed Chris's room, um, there's no network jacks. There's no phone jacks. There's no cable jacks. There's nothing in it other than power. So I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to get network into it. So that way I can join you guys again. Cause at this point, um, there's no network over there at all in the phone lines are horrible. Well, just run your own Cat Five. It's not that hard. Uh, I know. That's what I mean. I'm going to end up doing it anyway. It just was like I was hoping I could get it. I could sneak it in through, you know, like pulling back the cable. Is there a is there a a, a basement? There is, but it's sealed. It's all finished. Ah. So spousal approval of just you know dropping the ceiling and running everything is. Very, very low possibility. <laughs> so I, uh, so, my old house, there wasn't a basement. There was a crawl space. And mm-hmm. uh, I uh, grabbed a young, uh, you know, 18-year-old uh, kid who was willing to work for a couple of bucks an hour and a case of beer 
and uh, I made him crawl under the house, and I drilled holes from above and said, run this over here, and then I'd knock on the floor. Over here, walk to where I'm knocking. Follow the sound. Okay, good. Now, I'm shining this light through the hole. Stick it up through there. And so, yeah, it was great. It was easy for me. <laughs> yeah. We're going to be doing something similar, but instead of using the basement, we're going to end up doing a lot of – I'm hoping we can get away with a lot of uh, just fishing wire and tape or uh, fish sticks. Fish tapes. Yeah. 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 Between the me and my buddy, we should be able to get it all taken care of in a couple of hours, but – I'm just not looking forward to doing it. I just think it should be U.S. construction code that every room has at least two empty conduits in it. I, I, I just I think, think that should be standard. Well, it makes, things, it makes things so much easier. And if I ever demo this house down or rip the basement down, I'm going to be running you know, actual conduit runs to a, every room. It's just I don't want to do it now because I think my wife would probably kill me if I said, I need to go buy some more stuff. She hasn't seen the uh, the price tag for the communication center. Yeah. I don't think she's going to like that too much. Yeah, so the, the the good way to do it is to have the person below drill up through the, the footer, and mm-hmm. you cut a hole in the sheetrock and fish it up and then put a nice plate on there. Now, I just cut a little square out of the carpet, drilled a hole in there, and put the square in the carpet back. And, uh, there you go. That's the way I did it. You can do that when you yep. own the house. Yep, yep. That's stuff I can do if I want to. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how well the lighting is going to be in the new place because it's not as anywhere near as well lit as this current location. So it'll be interesting. We'll we'll, we'll have fun with it and see how much more light I have to buy. The, the main light source across from me is um, a uh, one of those garage motion sensor lights uh, screwed into. Um, an extension cord and hanging from an old mic stand uh, so that when I come in and I do this, it comes on. So, yeah, you don't have to be sophisticated at all. Uh, you don't have to be, but you guys know me, have known me for how long? Do I ever do the easy thing? Ironically, no. as we were talking about my backup recording and the need for it, my computer it crashed. No, the main computer just crashed. So... Uh-huh. turned out to be a good thing. I had it running. That's good. So no more lost episodes. Yeah. That, yes. I, 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 that, there are three different recording sources every time I do a show now since the last lost episode. I try to make sure that never happens. I really need to just buy a new laptop. I've been saying that for years because every time I, I, you know, I patch this one, I put another Band-Aid on it. Uh, but, no, it's, it's really kind of garbage at this point. Um so anyway, I had a, just something I wanted to discuss, more of a, a philosophical discussion than an actual technical. Uh, I experimented for the first time with OwnCloud uh, this last week. I'm, I've started uh, uh, doing another podcast uh, on the PodNuts network. I'm, I'm now the host of the Android App Addicts podcast. Um, their, their host stepped away. I've been a listener to the show for a while, so it was a good opportunity for me to step in. But uh, anyway, um, the uh, the owner of that network, Door to Door Geek, or your, good, your friend and mine, um, when I was looking to send him the files, he said, well, I've got an old cloud server set up. And if you don't know about own cloud, it's essentially Dropbox that you host. Um, and so he's got it running on a banana pie, and I downloaded the, uh, the client on my machine, and it works just like Dropbox. And it, you know, it's, it syncs partials and all that sort of stuff. So uh, the, the technology is solid, and, and so I don't really need to 
to uh, talk about that. But the uh, what what got me to thinking about the whole thing is the the concept of own cloud. So, you know, being the the open source do it yourself guys that you are, we all tend to want to to jump into that. Hey, this is great. I own my content. I'm not giving my stuff to to Google or somebody else. But the, as I got to thinking about it, it occurred to me that we're kind of giving up almost all the benefits of say a Dropbox or something like that when we use own cloud because we're not getting the we're, it's not on somebody else's server. It's on our bandwidth and our servers, and it's costing us, and there's a single point of failure. So, you know, what, Chris, we'll start with you. What are your thoughts on just that whole concept of, of the, the value of distributing stuff but distributing it on your own stuff, your own hardware? Right. So I've, I've been wrestling with that particular thought for a long time because I would love to get off of all the cloud-based services that I'm using, you know, Dropbox, Google Google Drive, um, copy.com. Uh, but I keep coming back down to the fact that I don't have the resources to be bulletproof like these other online sources are. Um, if Dropbox ever dies, you know, that would have, it would take, you know, a, a global catastrophe because they have so many different data centers. Same thing with Google Drive and copy.com. Um, I don't have that type of resources available to me. So that's my biggest thing is because I store stuff in there encrypted that, you know, it's on four different computers, but it's also in their data center replicated. Who knows? So the, the, the do it yourself, uh, the open sourcer that. would say, well, the three of you guys could host each other's files. You each set up your own own cloud server and, and then you host your own files and you've got redundancy mm-hmm. that way. But then that's three people doing the work. And and it's still an inferior network. It's using three home uh, quality networks. Um, I guess you could rent a hosting provider yep. and build a server there, right? Uh, do a virtual server somewhere. But then you're you're like five times the cost of a Dropbox. It just it yep. uh, it's it seems to be an well, idealistical and, win, and, but only idealistic. Yeah, I'm with you there. You know, when it comes to, you know, I would love to have a group of people that I would trust with my data like that. But I just have a hard time trusting anybody with my data. So, you know, unless I'm doing it pre uploading for encryption, you know, that's, uh, that's the choice you're going to play there. Seth, what are your thoughts? Anything? Well, you know, for important private or security stuff, I, don't put it on the cloud. I have a couple of local copies of it. So having an on cloud to me for just, you know, stuff that is, yeah, you know, it, it's stuff I've acquired that I like to keep. Dropbox is fine. Google drive is fine, whatever. But if like something that I have passwords on or, um, things like that, um, you know, financial data, that's not really going to go on a Dropbox account that's not going to go on Google Drive. So something like that on on cloud, to me, that would be the use for it. It's something that just the, the tinfoil visor in me doesn't want to store on somebody else's cloud because then I only control it so long as they allow me to access it. And then I have no idea who does what with the backups or whatever 
And of course, I, you know, you can make the argument that, well, you're going over other people's routers and it's not your stuff and blah, blah, blah. I understand. Um, like I say, it's just the tinfoil visor in me. Uh, you know, that's, it's the nature of the beast. I would use it for things that I didn't want to store in somebody else's cloud. Um, but I wouldn't use it for the, eh, you know, um, little documents, um, things I do, you know, show ideas for this or things. I don't, you know, I mean, it would be nice to be able to access those, but it's not going to end my life if I lose them. But, you know, the password to my bank account that's only available online, that's kind of important. And that's not going on a cloud somewhere. Well, it's relatively trivial to encrypt a volume in a Dropbox and have everything, you know, have the encrypted data um, distributed. And in fact, that's how I handle my secure stuff. I have an encrypted uh chunk of data that i put on dropbox and it gets shared out and i own the keys to that Mm -hmm. um so it's it you know in terms of the whole security thing um it takes a couple of extra steps but you can make it secure so i could host your your encrypted data chris you could host my encrypted data and even if our you know trust relationship uh person to person broke down i wouldn't be able to break your data assuming you did you know reasonable encryption on it and vice versa right uh but you know, and part of me likes that sense of community, right? You know, we're 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 home grow, growing it, we're doing our thing. We, it literally is my own crowd, uh, cloud. There, you know, Crash Plan is a, a similar sort of thing. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I've talked about uh, when I was working with schools. I had this grand plan for to have a bunch of different schools set up backup PC servers at each other's locations, uh, so that you could get the benefit of of offsite backups. Invariably, it never worked out. Uh, it's always the the human element that falls apart, not the technological element. But also, there's mm-hmm. the fact that you know, like I said earlier, it's consumer grade networks. Um, it is always difficult to make those kind of connections uh, without a third party. So I don't know how own cloud does it. Maybe they have a connection server out in the cloud, uh, sort of like uh, you know Skype does, a super node kind of thing that helps make those connections. Uh, and then you talk back and forth. I haven't looked into it. Uh, but just the idea of, you know, there are times when I think it is actually better to trust somebody else with your data, which I know the 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 tenfold hat people just, just shouted. They're right now yelling at their podcast players saying, it's never okay to trust Google. It's never okay to trust Dropbox. Don't you remember Dropbox had this story in the news a while back? Uh, but you know, again, my point is you encrypt your data before you send it out, and then it doesn't really matter all that much who has it, right? Am I right. am I oversimplifying that? No, I think you're about right on that one. Um, at you least know, in my in my thought process, the comeback on that is the security that we have today is adequate for today, but will it be adequate for tomorrow? You know, what happens if? whatever security Dilphy Hellman seven or whatever they're out there. What if tomorrow a vulnerability is announced for that? And then if somebody has your data, then boom, your stuff is out in the open. Now I know that's a random example, but that is something that the tenfold visors would throw back in your face. Whereas if you had your data, then so what you still have it. So, I mean, that that's an, that's a, that's a far left field cry on why it would not be good enough but no I, I get your point so so i i encrypt something i send it to, to dropbox they make a backup of it um they could hold that backup for decades 
Um, yep. And then when technology gets to the point where 256-bit Blowfish encryption is you know seconds to crack, they have my data stored. Um, I would say uh, that the the value of that data has a time has a time span on it. Um, and so at the time when that becomes crackable, it's probably no longer practically useful. Unless well, we'd I, hope not. Unless I'm encrypting my, you know, um, my porn. I don't, I don't know. You know, I don't know what, I can't think of an example in a regular life, right? I mean, Jared Fogle could have done uh, 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 some service from an encryption, but uh, in my, you know, my practical everyday life, I can't think of anything that is both sensitive and timeless. Yeah, because yeah, there's very few things that would be very few things would be then in that particular boat. I, in my opinion, you know, there are some banking data, you know, maybe your your biometrics or your bio data for you know things that you can't change. Those would be that that would be timeless. Seth, you were going to say, yeah, um, you know, just pretty much exactly what Chris said. You know, something that you have your social security on. You know, if you store, if you keep a copy of your tax returns, which I, I keep mine, but I, you know, like I say, I keep them locally. So five years from now, if that got cracked, that's my social security number and my address, uh, where I worked. And, you know, so there's, you set an identity thief up, you know, big time because you're not the, you know, yes, for one person, that's not a big deal, but how many, Hundreds, if not thousands of people do that. So, and again, I understand this is a, we're talking not practically feasible to worry about, but within the realm of possibility. I, I was having a con- uh, conversation with the uh, door to door geek about, uh, um, he, he, he was scared to use, not scared, uh, disdain the use of clipboard managers on Android because you never know what could get access to that clipboard. So if he's using LastPass, and he's copying an, a super encrypted password into the clipboard manager so that he can paste it into the website. You know, who knows what happens with the data uh, that that's in that mm-hmm. clipboard manager. But my, my my comeback to that, and I think it ties into this conversation, is you know not only is it uh, does it have to be sensitive and timeless, but context matters. So if I copy a long random string of text into a clipboard, um, there's a you know, you could make a reasonable uh, assessment that that's probably a password, but you don't know what it's a password to because I haven't used the clipboard to paste in the address to the website. Uh, I haven't used the clipboard right. to paste in my my username. So you don't know the username that goes with that password. I think that, that we tend to get so locked in on security, we forget practicality. So, you know, there, there are several things that has to happen. There has to, it has to be timely. It has to be, uh, sensitive and it, there has to be context to it. And unless you meet all three of those criteria, having the data doesn't actually do you any good. Right. Seth, yeah. I can see you Did want I mean, to disagree I, with me there. No, I say something. It's you raise valid points that, um, are you raise valid points that are true, but again, for a, a one-off type thing, it's not practical. But if you're harvest, if you have that information over a period, then you, you build your context. Yeah. So anyway, I know. No, these I are, get the point there. You can yeah. construct context through time and effort. You can construct yeah. context. Um, so 
if you are, you know, a, a U.S. senator or a, a U.N. Uh, secretary general, uh, then your data is such that you need to prevent people from constructing context. If you're right. just random guy on the street, um, it's not worth the effort to construct context. There are lower hanging fruits available. Right. And that ties in with our first bit of listener feedback. Mr. Crash is actually somebody on the internet who agrees with me. Imagine that. What? We, we no. got some listener feedback. Okay. I wrote Wait this. a minute. Wait a minute. Yeah. Mark Cockrell, Mr. Crash. <laughs> yeah. I see yeah. a pattern there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think so. Uh, so he says, um, hey, everyone at EDL, on your discussion in episode 201, I have to agree with you, Mark. Here are some reasons. Back in the quote unquote good old days, your neighbors knew everything you did or didn't do, and they told every who didn't already knew if you live in a small town or are from a small town you know exactly what i mean back in the good old days we didn't have paper shredders so where did your phone bills go that included everyone you talked to and who they called and including the 976 uh, uh, numbers i don't know why i put seth in there but uh um that's right uh that's right into the trash uh complete and usually in the envelope they came in along with that the uh, there was no electric filing or banking so where did all your bank statements goes uh bills old checkbooks magazine subscriptions old medical uh, prescriptions and prescription bottles yep right in the trash where anybody including those trash diggers could find out all your information as well in that 90s apartment complex and uh Excuse me. In the '90s, apartment complexes and homeowners who were renting out property uh, could uh, could now do a cre- credit check on you. Uh, ever have that scumbag landlord? I did, and they got the following information from you: full name, social security number, age, where you were born, three or four friends' uh, names, and their phone numbers for the, in the form of character reference. From that, uh, they could do a credit check, and they got the following: a standard credit report, a credit score, a criminal background check, a sex offender background check, unlawful detainer and eviction history, an employment verification and an OFAC terrorist search. Then even before that was credit cards. Remember back in the day, people would warn you about credit cards? I remember my parents saying, stick to writing checks. Now, we don't do checks. We take it directly out of our accounts via Amazon. We pay bills over the phone to any schmo that represents the company we're dealing with. Let's not, let's talk... Now, talk about the new car uh, or buy a new house or whatever you gave Verizon to sign that two-year contract to get the new unsecured phone. After all that rambling, I don't think we're any worse off. I actually think people are more secure. People around us know absolutely nothing about us. The neighbors I have, if I bumped them to them at the store, I wouldn't even know they were actually my neighbors. I don't socialize with my neighbors, unlike when I was young. Uh, you can do things online that used to require going somewhere to enjoy, uh, from sports to concerts. Also, at the corner store, most likely uh, has someone working who, A, doesn't live anywhere near you, or B, B, has no clue who you are, and no one will tell you to tell you to drink a fifth of, and no one to tell that you drink a fifth of vodka a week. Not that there are any neighbors who would actually care. Same with your pharmacists, supermarket workers, and even the gym you work out in. Yeah, you can even walk around today, and most people you pass wouldn't know or even care who you are. So he argues that our disconnected world breeds anonymity by the fact that nobody cares. I could see that being there, too. So I really don't know where else to go with that. I mean, he kind of nailed every head and, you know, in, in one fashion or another, that's. I mean, kind of the way the world is right now. I could poke a few holes in it and say that that. Those you could do those things because the idea was not popularly known to go 
you know, rifling through your your garbage. And today it is considered sort of a standard mm-hmm. practice uh, if you want to uh, steal somebody's identity. Identity theft was around in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, but it was not uh, so so prevalent as it is now. And, and I think that goes to Seth's point. Here I am making somebody else's point for him who disagrees with me. And that's that <laughs> things have gotten so much easier now that you it's it's more important to us to take care of the things that we wouldn't have cared for before because now they're easy. Mhm. Any comments, Seth? No, I mean that's it. We are we are less trusting and uh less trustworthy as a society. Um so we have to do more to secure ourselves because the common good bar seems to be much lower than it used to be. So my, that or I just recognize more how crappy everybody's been all along. One of those two. <laughs> my old phone bills, electric bills, all that sort of stuff. You know what I do with those? I don't put them in the paper shredder. I stack them up and I use them for fire starters in the winter. Not because mm-hmm. it's safe to burn them, but because I'm too cheap to buy those little wax and sawdust things. Those are expensive. And so I just stuff a few under some wood and set a match to it and walk away. And it works. Yes. <laughs> So there's a there's a little housekeeping tip and a security tip. Save up your old bills and start fires with them. They might actually work better if you shred them first. I haven't tried that. Oh, there you go. Yeah, that might work. And next up, David comments on Old Man Son. First off, congratulations on re- reaching somewhere around 200 episodes of this show. And I hope there's more, many more to come. Um, with that out of the way, I wanted to touch base on the subject you guys had uh, brought up in, uh, excuse me, touch base. I went totally corporate. He didn't write touch base. I just have heard touch base thousands of times a day, every day since I entered the corporate world that I inserted that in there. I apologize, <laughs> David, for making you a corporate DB. So what we had to do was put a pin in his <laughs> no, listener feedback. No, let's circle back So we could circle back around to what Mark was doing and allocate the resources necessary to explain the situation. Having said that, let's circle back around, take the pin out, and continue with the listener feedback. Go, Mark. With that out of the way, I wanted to touch on the subject you guys had brought up in episode 201, starting with Sun's stance on white hat hackers. I feel like Sun is an old guy with a dog who only cleans up after it a few days a year. The white hat hackers are the the neighborhood kids who come in and surprise the old man by picking up the dog crap. But the old man only tells them to get off his lawn and that he'll call the cops if they trespass again. While they, Sun, are correct and it's illegal to view their source code, a point you guys did bring up, they're still being ungrateful little brats about the whole thing i don't know maybe i should start yelling at kids to get off my lawn because i think that constructive criticism isn't a bad thing even if it's given over some questionable circumstances i don't think anyone is more wrong or more right in the scenario in any case i just err on the side of community whenever possible that's why i enjoy open source so much anyway that's all i had later fellas david i like his thoughts on that yeah i mean you know it's one thing to uh try to it's one thing to view the source code but it's another thing to run standard security um, protocols at it and that results in the source code becoming available so right or auditing your own software like everybody should and not everyone does so i wonder if uh sun has like a cranky old man dot pie script that they run that just generates (laughs) these complaints about hackers maybe wouldn't put it past that's the way google would do it for sure (laughs) 
That's the way I would do it. I yeah, mean, really. Yeah. They'd probably use more JavaScript than Google. Yeah. I see you're searching <laughs> through my source code. Would you like me to help you file a, a, a complaint with the FCC? All right. Oh, that's funny. And then a couple of bits of feedback from Cap'n Haddock. Uh, first, he asks about Element Opie. He says, hey, Mark, how'd you come up with the name Element Opie for your one-show network? Nice little jab there, Captain Haddock. Thank you very much. Um, it hasn't always been a one-show network. And at one point, I was doing seven shows a week, um, but I ran out of co-hosts, plain and simple. But to answer your question, <laughs> uh, Element OP is something that I've had for years. Actually, I registered it, the domain, back in... Oh, 99, 2000, somewhere around there, just because I liked it. Um, it's a play on A, B, C, D, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Element, O, P. Um, and like three people in the world ever get that joke. Uh, some people say, hey, that sounds like LMNOP. Yes, it does. Thank you very much. Um, but when uh, we had a show called The Tightwad Tech, in fact, this is all available on the About page at LMNOP.com. Uh, my co-host and I, Sean, had a show. We started the second show, this one, Everyday Linux, and we realized that we couldn't, we didn't want to go two shows on one web address, and I didn't want to do two web addresses. So I didn't want to say, to go to the LMNOP, uh, to Everyday Linux website, go to tightwadtech.com slash everyday linux that seemed a little silly and i didn't want to manage two websites i really believe that uh one owner uh or or content producers uh per website i know other people don't agree with me there are uh, guys out there hoping up a website for every uh, uh podcast i just don't think that works as well I, I think you need to have one entity and i had already had element op in the bag and in fact it i never I don't know that. I'm not going to say never. I don't often refer to it as a network. It's a production company. So Mm -hmm. I produce content under the license. It's actually DBA. It's not an LLC or anything like that, but under the name Element OP Production. So I do this podcast. I've done other podcasts. I'm actually, I've got a deal going right now to do uh, an audio book and it will be copyright, a performance copyright Element OP Productions. So my idea there long-term is to be a content producer under the company Element OP Productions, currently the the content that we're doing on a regular basis is the Element OP podcast. So there's probably a longer answer than you were looking for, but that's okay because now he knows. <laughs> and uh, we do get that question periodically, uh, so you know we're going to circle back to it and uh, and address that. And apparently, he also asked Seth a question privately. Hey, mate, just curious, how do you score such good dev randoms, and what method of searching do you use to find this week in history? Well, Captain, what I do, I used to, um, when I had an iPhone for work, I would not own one personally. Um, I use the um, the Wikipedia, this day in history. Um, I just, I got it because I loved it. It's a bunch of trivia, and that's what I like, useless facts. Um, and Usually, there's a couple on there that have to do with technology, so I get them. I also have a few websites I go to and just kind of has, like today, I was actually researching news, and I came across today's This Week in History, and dev slash random is just internet archaeology. I go to this website. I click on here. I see what it looks like. I go here. I'm clicking around. I find stuff, and I just like... But usually what I will do is I will shoot it to myself in an email. And then whenever I'm doing work on the show, I collect those emails and put them in a document for future, um, Seth's links and this week in history stuff. So that's how we do it around these here parts. And Seth has been <laughs> trolling the web for interesting stuff since long before 
he was doing this podcast. It's actually before there was a web. He would just go to the library and pick up dictionaries or phone books or whatever and just start randomly scrolling through them. He, that's the kind of guy he is. He he's probably he's a data archivist at heart. Yep. Which is you why I hate a job for it's it. why I hate people or sites and services telling me stuff I might like. It's like I want to find it out for myself. Leave me alone and get off my digital lawn. So. <laughs> Seth can tell you more about the history of Van Zandt County than you ever want to know because on one afternoon he'd picked up the phone book and started reading through it. How do I know this? Because he's regaled me many times over the last 25 years with Van Zandt County information. There you go. Yep. Seth, who is Van Zandt County named after? Isaac Van Zandt, some famous person in Texas history. <laughs> uh, no, I knew I know he's named after Isaac Van Zandt, but I never can remember what Isaac Van Zandt is famous for. I've looked it up many times, but it was so unremarkable it just doesn't stick. He's probably a Civil War veteran, so people will be uh, petitioning to change the name of the county soon. No, no, he was. Uh, it was Van Zandt County pre Civil War, and actually, here's a <laughs> fact. <laughs> Van Zandt County had the lowest percentage of slave population in the settled Texas area. It was much lower than any others. Um, you see I what I did this- there? All I had to do was toss out a fact that was wrong, and immediately his, not only do I have to be right, everyone around me has to be right, Gene kicked in, and he had to correct me. It's great. Yep. There's something wrong on the internet. We have to fix it. <laughs> I don't have much, okay? <laughs> Just let me have this little corner of this desk I'm sitting at has mine, and I'll be happy. Oh, Seth, I I don't know if we can do that. I can just see Seth, you know, later down in life when he's married. His wife's like, honey, you coming to bed? Yeah, just a minute. Someone's wrong on the internet. That that XKCD's strip of that? Yeah. Is there one? That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, there is. I, I probably just that. ripped that off because I read that all the time and just don't remember it. Yep. I saw it just the other day. My wife sent it to me going, so this is you every night, isn't it? <laughs> I'm the Batman of the internet. I'm fixing grammar errors left and right. I don't know about grammar errors. I'm horrible, but yes. <laughs> the one and only edit I've ever made to Wikipedia, I cleaned up a guy's grammar, and I'm not kidding, within less than a minute, 45 seconds, he had reversed those edits and put his bad grammar back and reported me. Uh, really? Yes, for having corrected his grammar. What? Yeah. That's just ridiculous. So I, I, was, awesome. I was like, this Wikipedia thing, it's not for me. Wow. I, I didn't dispute any of the content in the article. I just fixed a, some, the sentence structure on a few things. And he must have been just walking or you know, watching it or, or had a, a you know a cron task uh, checking it out or something. But as soon as that change was made, he went back and immediately changed it and reported me as a... Um, kind of whatever they report people as on on Wikipedia. Wow, um, some people intelligent, yeah. I guess. <laughs> it was an article on sepia toning, by the way, that sort of quasi brown and black uh, right way of of uh, doing film. Originally, the sepia was actually squid ink. That's the name of it, um, and that was used uh, um, as the the method for developing the film. And, you know, today it's a filter on Instagram. Back in the day, it was high technology. And so he had a good article about it, but some of his sentence structure was just didn't make sense. It was a little convoluted and just not right. So being the grammar Nazi that I am, I had to fix it. And uh, he reported me. <laughs> well, just bad taste, right? Because, <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's difficult to be the only guy who's right 
on the internet. You know, actually, probably right. all he did was just copy it from some other source, and he got mad that somebody <laughs> corrupted his copying. That's probably what happened. Yeah. That is, so. that is, there are large parts of Wikipedia that are just that. True. I, I, I had a smooth transition somewhere in there to Linux Academy. It was lost. So linuxacademy.com is your place <laughs> on the web for you to, to, to learn about uh, uh, the skills necessary to become a certified Linux professional. Their job, their stated goal is to take you from being a, a novice or maybe a semi-advanced uh, uh, computer user who doesn't know much about Linux, teach you the Linux skills to go along with your computer skills and uh, prepare you for Linux certification. They do this through the step, by the way, they're step-by-step videos, but as I've said so many times before, it's way more than just videos it's videos it's it's paper uh printouts that are accompany those videos it's lesson plans it's this amazing uh lab environment that lets you fire up virtual machines that are that are lightning fast and safe so you can do your experimentation without breaking anything uh, and they're expanding way beyond linux now they've got ruby on linux they've got uh um uh SQL database. They've got Amazon Web Services stuff. So even though the name is Linux Academy, they really are about uh, teaching you modern computing in general. Um, and it's it's independently certified, high quality content. They have partnerships with the people who are giving uh, the certification tests because the the people who take the tests want people to get certified. And they recognize this place as a, as a source of high-quality content and a good way to get people certified. So they've teamed up. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to go on and on about it, but I will tell you that you can check all this out for, you know, it's the prices really, I'm, I'm surprised they haven't gone up. I'm expecting them to go up any day now because $25 a month for what they offer is just really too little, too little. It's too cheap. And in fact, I think people are probably going to look at it and they're going to think it's less valuable than it is because it's so inexpensive. If you go to some other site on the web that offers this level of content and this level of community interaction and this many professionals in the field, you're going to pay significantly more than that. And so I think people still equate in their minds it's the Apple effect or the or the Bentley effect, whatever you want to call it, where the more you pay, the higher value it is. I know that, you know, my own myself, when I'm looking for something on Amazon and I see something that's three cents a piece and something that's three dollars a piece, I immediately tend to think that the three dollar one must be better. Um, so get in on this now because the Linux Academy prices probably aren't going to stay where they are. $25 a month, that's actually the highest you'll ever pay. If you if you uh, buy three three months at a time, it's $65 for the total, so that's $10 uh, uh, off right there. If you buy for a full year, 12 months, it's $215, which breaks down to just less than $18 a month. Don't take my advice. Don't go buy a, a year of it just because I said it's great. I really encourage you to check it out for a month. $25. Anybody can afford $25. Check it out. I get email from people all the time when i get x and i have enough money to try linux Academy, just don't wait just do it now this is your career especially if you're a young guy or girl just starting out just do it 25 dollars. you can afford it take it dip your toe in look around if you don't like it walk away no harm done but you're gonna like it and you're not gonna walk away linuxacademy.com if you go to linuxacademy.com slash everyday linux you get a discount off of even that price check them out let them know we sent you yeah one thing um in the past, when they have raised the prices, you're locked in at your price. I bought when it was significantly less, and my price has not gone up any time he's raised it. So um, I'm still getting an excellent value for my money, um, and I pay for it. So if you know me, you can get no greater endorsement than that. <laughs> yeah, That's pretty much it. 
Yeah. I'm not only a client, I'm also the owner. No, that's not right. <laughs> so anyway, moving on to uh, some long-abandoned news. Some of these articles are going to be a few weeks old because we haven't done news in a while because we, we, we've had such great topics, or at least I think they're great topics. Uh, but uh, Samsung doing it again with leading the world uh, on the the hard drive front, but this time with SSD, SSD drives. Yes, they um, had a 16 terabytes of storage sound. Um and they, instead of calling it a hard drive, they're going to call it JBOF for just a bunch of flash, but freaking <laughs> 16 terabytes of storage packed in a 2.5 inch case. Wow. Dude, that's I mean, a lot of storage. That, that's walking around with a data center in your hand. <laughs> you know, your laptop is now a portable data center. You, that's just, that's a freaking boatload. Um, and technically, I guess it's only 15.36 terabytes, uh, but it's right. solid state. So it's super quick. Um, and there you go. I thought this was just amazing. And I wanted to share out there with everybody how awesome it was. Of course, and Samsung I put, put together plans for a server that's stuck 48 uh, of these things together for 768 terabytes of data into a single server. Wow. That's a lot. Could you imagine, though, I mean, just think back, think about that for two seconds. If you had 16 terabytes of storage in your laptop, man, you would have to have one great search system set up to find everything. <laughs> yeah. That's just crazy amount of space. Yeah, I, that I predict that will be a new service that Google offers, Google for your own hard drive. It'll be their <laughs> algorithm that indexes your drive. Um because it's just a matter of time, right? Uh, I remember many years ago, uh, one of my good friends, Troy, hi, Troy, if you're listening, saying, I've got 200 megs of hard drive space just sitting there. I'm never going to use 200 megs of hard drive space. Um, and he was right. He, on that computer, he never touched it, right? And then we moved mm-hmm. on, and now, you know, the typical laptop has a one terabyte, two terabytes, you know, is pretty typical. Um so 16 is way out there, but what? Five years? That'll be standard. Six years? Won't be long. Or less. Yeah. Or less, depending on how, how far flash memories pricing changes. Man, just imagine how long it would take Spinrite to check that. <laughs> well, supposedly Spinrite's going to get updated. Yes. And, yeah, uh, well, and you're talking finishes. about flash drives. So that's, that's much faster access anyway. Yeah, that is true. Once you take joke, the spinning. It was supposed to be funny. Right. Once you take the spinning disc out of the equation, um, things get so much. I mean, it's more stable. It's faster. Um, there's less physical wear and tear. We've talked about, we did a whole episode about how flash drives to write them to is to destroy them. But, yep. um, most with the exception of, of swap, most of our access is read on drive. So it's multiple reads to single writes. Uh, and there's no spinning disc. There's no, you know, battery goes way down. That's, you know, that's the reason Apple dumped their, uh, spinning disc iPod as soon as, uh, NAND flash became readily available. It's a yep. great time to be alive. And it'll just get bigger. And, and as a side note, if you're still using a spinning hard drive, I used to make the argument that it's not a big deal till I got an SSD. And all of a sudden, I was like, I knew what everybody else was talking about. Right. Spinning it's drives are great for attached storage that you don't need right away. But if you want to get a new computer, just invest in an SSD, and you'll think whatever computer you have is new again. 
it's like seeing in color for the first time. It is that stark a difference. <laughs> yeah, it's spooky. And I used to just think, I mean, guys, I was just like, I was like, oh, it's not that big of a difference. You're just saying that. And then I got one and I hit on in my laptop and Windows came up like that. I was like, <laughs> right. dude, that's, this is awesome. Why didn't you tell me? Oh, wait, you did. So. Yeah, there's now no speed benefit to suspending to to RAM uh, yep. or to the drive. You just you go ahead and turn it off because it takes just as uh, the same amount of time to wake to turn it on as it does to wake it up. And actually, Windows I think boots faster than it comes back on. Yeah, just like possibly. if you were to like, because it's like got to think. Wait a minute, what was I doing? Hold on, I got to do my startup process so I can get to the uh reset. Okay, wait. So yeah, just turn it off and then turn it back on later. And if you're on a, a laptop, you'll get better better battery immediately without doing anything else because uh, you're yep. not spinning that disc anymore. Yeah, it's amazing. The the things that we've seen, you know, I I remember uh I'm going to say 97, 98, somewhere around that uh era. Uh, a friend of mine was complaining that my computer was uh, was a little slow, and I said, "Yeah, I just don't want to upgrade until I can get a gig." And he chuckled, said, "You're going to be waiting a while, aren't you?" Because um, I just, you know, gigahertz. I thought that was the thing. And at that time, there were a few gigahertz machines available, but they were water cooled. Um, and mm-hmm. then, you know, when they finally did come to the market, they had these giant freaking heat fan uh, heat uh, sinks on them. Now, phones have four gigahertz processors in them you know running off a battery with no fans at all it's just amazing how far we've come in just a few years uh and how far we're gonna come in in the next few years the things my kids are gonna see uh just boggles the mind well just the things we're gonna see yeah i mean just think of it that way we're gonna be we're gonna be the the dudes in in (laughs) wally sitting in the cool chairs (laughs) Yeah, I think I think that was supposed to be a cautionary tale, actually. Not oh, is that what it is? Not an aspirational thing. But but think yeah. about it, man. The chairs were comfy looking. Yeah. yeah, unfortunately, some of us already are those guys. So yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so you know, everything old is new again. We have all this great new technology, but now with uh, with Node.js, you can write COBOL. I yeah, I thought this was. This is a uh, 19, if you ever want to code like it's 1959, um, this is from an Ars Technica article. Have you ever wanted to just cut and paste some of that legacy COBOL code from mainframe applications into your latest web application? No? Well, there's a Romanian web developer and then some Romanian name there has just developed a way to do it. He created a COBOL bridge for Node JavaScript. Um, so there you go. Every, you know, COBOL just won't die. It is still there. And now... You can code it straight from your mainframe into whatever late. So you can go back to all those old mainframe apps and we can like add more apps to the app store. Yay. Cobalt. It's still alive. <laughs> and it's, there are still a lot of mainframe machines running around. One of my friends uh, is actually a mainframe administrator in the year 2015. Uh, wow. They still exist. And there's probably still some running, the old COBOL or MIPS or whatever. Uh, but now you can just copy-paste that code right into your own web app and run it on your iPhone. How cool is that? I don't know how useful it is, but it's cool. It's I mean, cool, you know, you can – well, think of – you can take that old mainframe – 
um, that probably has about a tenth of the horsepower of whatever your latest smartphone is. And just think of the electricity savings you can get by dumping that mainframe and running it as a web app on some smartphone. So that's got, there's got to be some value in that. Yeah. I mean, if you could literally get all the functionality of a mainframe on, you know, a, a standard uh, device, that, that actually on, has a lot of value there. On a Raspberry Pi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. Imagine that. Suppose you could, you could take your Raspberry Pi back to 1959 and say, you see that, you see the third floor right there? I hold more power than the third floor in the palm of my hand. And they would go, huh? Yeah. And then engineers would drool and want to, want to have love your love babies. So. <laughs> one of the, one of the <laughs> books that, that we've talked about on the, on the show that I, uh, read slash listened to a while back, the off to be the wizard. Um, one of the characters yep. in there is referring to, the the modern iphone uh and the the he says something to the effect of you mean that device in the palm of your hand that has more computing power power than the entire computer science department of mit university the year i graduated that device (laughs) (laughs) yes yes that one that's a great book too and a good series I I haven't been interested in it enough to continue the rest of the series but it was a it was a fun read the third one's a little rough, but the second one's pretty good. Well, while we're on the topic, I'm almost finished with Memory of Earth, uh, based on the con com com uh, woo, based on conversations of the show and suggestions from listeners. I checked it out. Um, you know, it's okay. It's not Orson Scott, Scott Card's best. I'm probably not going to continue the rest of the series. There, you know, uh, there's just not enough there there for me to want to to move on. So that's my short review of the Memory of Earth. Uh, moving on, Windows 10, maybe you've heard of it. It's Microsoft's new thing. They've released three patches in a pretty short period of time, but what they're not doing is telling us what's in those patches. Yeah, so basically they are becoming just like every, well, by every other we mean like Apple and Google. And they're just putting updates out there because, you know, used to there was a knowledge base article that told you what the patch was about and you could see, hey, is this patch going to affect this $4 billion piece of software our company needs now? Not so much. Um, and, you know, one of the things we've talked about before, if you don't have the professional version of Windows 10, they're just going to update it really without telling you about it. So now not only are they going to update it without telling you about it, they're not telling you what they're updating. So they're just, hey, we fixed Windows. Welcome to the brave new world. That's interesting. That, that's kind of, that kind of scares me as a system, as a an old system admin, because I had stuff that was broken all the time because of window updates. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, or go they're ahead. not. Te- it's not that they're not telling you that updates are coming. They're not telling you what's in the updates. And I'm actually in agreement with this philosophy because Microsoft has been, you know, uh, sort of unusually frank about what it's fixing. And a lot of hackers wait for security fix announcements and they go immediately try to compromise what they're fixing on unpatched machines, particularly in the enterprise where people like you, Chris, are reticent to update because updates Mm -hmm. have been known to break things. So by being forthright about what they're fixing, they're actually making it easier, I think, for hackers to go attack that thing. So they're they're changing that philosophy um, in the idea of security through obscurity. See, what I think would be better, a better way of doing it is to say that by, you know, the general populace doesn't get the updated information, but then 
if you sign up for your micro, if you're a Microsoft insider or whatever you have to do to register with them, they can get the white pages saying that that's what it is. So you think there are no hackers that are also Microsoft insiders? I didn't say that. No, I didn't say that, but it would help uh, mitigate who has access to it. Well, it, I understand why they're doing it, but the, the drawback is, you know, there's lots of businesses who run custom apps. Um, and so some update that they don't know what's good. They, it's like, Hey, will this update break our app? I don't know. Let's check it out and see, you know, <laughs> that's not a good way to do it. Um, so again, it's not that what they're doing is wrong, but I think changing midstream kind of i guess it's not midstream but changing the way they've conditioned their user base to expect it is wrong so is it necessary maybe but i don't think i'm wrong in saying that there are a lot of enterprises that still haven't thoroughly vetted windows 7 um you know let alone windows 8 and windows 10 Um, right so they're the the enterprise route is always going to be way behind the recipe because you're scared, right? If some if an update to IE breaks something mission critical, you could be losing millions of dollars per minute for every minute of downtime while they're trying to fix it. So I understand it, mm-hmm. but I think there's just no way around this. Um, you know, except maybe going the way Microsoft did for so long, having an enterprise offering and a desktop uh, or a customer offering. You know, they did that for years with Windows NT and Windows uh, 95. They were essentially the same OS, but on two different tracks. And with uh, Windows XP, they merged those two. And really, that was what caused the enterprise people around the world to kind of panic. And they have been ever since. Mm-hmm. So it's just, the answer is stop using Windows. And if I had been paying more attention to the show lineup, I would have put these two together. But now you can go Ubuntu. I mean, stop. if you don't want to stop using Windows and move to Linux, you can put Ubuntu on your mainframe. So not only can you get rid of your mainframe by copying COBOL into Node.js, now you can actually load Ubuntu right onto your mainframe. Yes. Um, you know, you there's, there's always some good announcements come out of LinuxCon, and LinuxCon was this last week, and I'm actually kind of bummed I didn't get to go, so I, I want to plan. I enjoyed it last year, and I don't think I want to go back next year. But anyway, IBM and Canonical announced that Ubuntu Linux will soon be running on mainframes. Uh, you know, one of the great benefits of mainframes is the ability to run. You could load up thousands of virtual machines or many thousand containers. So instead of having a whole bunch of servers, you could essentially have a mainframe doing that. And so IBM is going to be working with Ubuntu to um, bring it to their power architecture. So, you know, and selling it pre-installed. Yeah. So it's not just, it's now available, but you can actually buy from IBM a box specifically designed and pre-installed with Ubuntu Linux, excuse me, Ubuntu GNU slash Linux. (laughs) And we all just died a little inside, or at least I did. (laughs) So that's, uh, you know, I still think that the hope of Linux on the desktop has, has gone. Obi-Wan was the only hope and he died. Um, but uh, Ubuntu or Linux on the server is is going to be you know world world dominant in in just a matter of time. Yeah, and further buttressing so. my point, Hulu now hates Linux. Uh, you, Hulu. Pretty much. Hey, well, you know, you can kind of um, you can kind of thank Chrome 
for killing Flash. Um, because or Hulu has moved from Flash to Flash plus DRM. And so the only way to get it to work in Linux and Hulu is actually, um, one of the oldest streaming services around. I think they've added 17 more since we started this podcast. Um, <laughs> so if you want it to work on a Linux machine, you have to like use this old Firefox thing that Firefox hasn't supported in like three years. Um, so it's one of those, you know, I think it's good that we're getting rid of flash because of how cumbersome it was. But until they decide to move to HTML5, you know, the uh, drawback is, you know, because you can't really get Silverlight on Linux. Hey, you could try to use Wine maybe um, or Firefox or, you know, have a Windows virtual machine or something. But it just kind of goes in there with, um, you know, according to Hulu, Linux desktop is kind of like a second class citizen. And they it's not. And unfortunately, it's not really a big enough market for them to care about. Neither is Hulu a big enough market for me to care about. Uh, this, you know, this doesn't mean a thing. Um, what does mean a thing is that both Amazon Prime and Netflix are, uh, you know, aggressively against Linux. So now you can finally do it with Chrome, uh, but Netflix doesn't really like it all that much. And as far as I know, there's no way to watch Amazon Prime on a Linux box. And it's not, it's not the, uh, the OS. It's not like they hate Linux. They hate openness. And when your whole business is uh, uh, centered around protecting content uh, protection and and, and, uh, protecting copyright, I understand it. It doesn't – I understand Netflix's business need to keep um, their DRM intact because if they didn't do that – uh, studios would not offer them their content at all because it's not Netflix's fault. It's Hollywood's fault. They are so scared that their stuff is going to be pirated. And as we know, DRM has completely killed piracy. Nobody has ever <laughs> copied a DVD since they introduced DRM. So Never. I understand their need to cling to that. Uh, but the fact is, it's a it's yet another reason that uh, Linux is going to be left in the cold because Linux OS's uh, distributions refuse to pay the fees. You know, you can license that. And most and part of your Windows license almost always includes that DRM when you get Silverlight or whatever that's yep. in there. Linux uh, distros refuse to do it. And when some sort of cross the picket line and offer to do it, the, the fellow Linux community shames them for it. Except for our friends at Black Lab. What was it Black Lab Linux? Mm-hmm. They seem to be doing all right. And, and, you know, there are people who do it and other people who criticize them for it. And, and it's, it's just another case where the, the Linux community is both our greatest strength and our greatest weakness. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's time for content producers to wake up and realize that they're not helping anything. All right. So as I've said many times on the show, the first thing I do when I buy a DVD is rip it because I have kids. Um, mm-hmm. and I rip it and I put it on my media center and we distribute it and we watch it on all our devices and, and I'm a felon because of that. And that's exactly what 
um, Hollywood doesn't want me to do. That's exactly what Disney doesn't want me to do. They offer their their uh, you know uh, what's the something light blue light or something. Oh, it's uh, ultraviolet. Uh, ultraviolet, yeah, blue light. Uh, they offer uh, ultraviolet, and and they come you know complete with digital copy. All you have to do is install this software and do this thing and sign this, and then you can use it on this device. But if you want to use it on another device, you have to deactivate this device. But you can only do that five times in the entire existence of your life, and then you can't watch the movie anymore. Or you can fire up Handbrake and watch it whenever you want. And it's mm-hmm. just, you know, the problem is that I still rip every movie and every now and then I have to crank on one a little longer or go use a different tool, but I've never found one I just flat couldn't rip. So it's not helping anything. Exactly. Well, no. They, there are they, plenty they, of toys, tools out there. They want you to just have a monthly subscription. You know, if you have a monthly subscription to whatever and they're constantly getting money from you, then you don't need to worry about ripping because you can always access it over whatever because you've paid your monthly license. As long so, as I have bandwidth and I, you know, and I don't mind paying AT&T a confiscatory rate for bits. Sure. That works. Yeah. Uh, it's a win-win situation. <laughs> it's a win for Disney. It's a win for the micro for Microsoft. It's a win for AT&T and it's a win for, you know, Whoever else it's a win for, everybody but the consumer, um, it's a win. And it's a lose for the consumer, yes. Pretty much. And nobody cares about the consumer, because apparently you can dump on your customer for 30 years straight, and they'll keep buying from you. I, if anybody, Microsoft, that I think that's actually their, their corporate motto, dumping on our customers for the last 40 years. Something like that. So at least that's what it feels like anymore. Which All is right. why we're Linux. Yeah. <laughs> we're we're Linux adjacent. Yeah. We try we're life yes. in the context of Linux. Yes. <laughs> so in the interest of time, I'm gonna only do a couple of more, but because the command light godfather is with us and because we've been storing this one for a while, we've got to talk about the fact that Ubuntu is trying to take the K out of Kubuntu. Over yeah, my dead th- body. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh you must have died some time ago, Chris. Um because this was uh this is an older story, but and this is from a computer world article, but a disagreement arose between the founder of Kubuntu and the Ubuntu Community Council. And um it it is it's kind of um left the project rudderless has Jonathan Riddle, he left Kubuntu. Kubuntu's governing body late last month and a month before he was forced out of his post has the de facto head um, even though he kind of helped start it in 2005 and it's weird because the organization that demanded and got his reg- resignation is the Ubuntu Community Council and so a council that really doesn't have any authority over Kubuntu but they still kind of got in kicked out so and yes, it's an older story now, but we just, we've been waiting and waiting and so now we're talking about it. So go, Chris. The rant is set up for you. Oh, the, the, the layers of anger just is hard to even say. Um, the other thing I wonder why though is I read the article, but I didn't see any spots where it actually said what the disagreement was. Did you guys catch it? No, they You're were kind of actually read the article. I didn't. <laughs> they were kind of wow. closed lipped about it. So there was a disagreement, but nobody's admitting there was a disagreement kind of thing. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of questions that 
gets popped up about this, but so does, and again, I didn't see anything, but it doesn't sound like they're going to remove the KDE from Ubuntu. They're just removing the K, the Kubuntu's uh, distribution path. Right. You're, there, there will always be KDE in whatever Linux because yep. nutbags like you, I'm sorry, because the <sighs> devoted people uh, seem to think that it's the, the right way to do things. Um, you know, Ow. despite the fact that it's resource intensive and confusing and they want to steer everything to the control panel and take control away from the user, despite all of those things, people really <laughs> seem to like uh, KDE and so it will always be available. That's right, because KDE is the best way to go. Um, actually, no, my love is currently not KDE. It's my, I've moved down to, um, LXDE or XFCE because of the fact that GNOME and KDE are so re intensive. My, my current laptop just can't handle it anymore. But anyway, <laughs> my love will always be for KDE. Um, but I just, I think it's ridiculous that a, a governing body of a different company can push so hard to get somebody out unless there was some really bad uh financial maybe dealings well you that, know they're that, they're an official spin of ubuntu so that gives ubuntu the right to you know sort of pull the plug on them if they want they can't make the work stop but they can certainly make them unofficial and apparently the kubuntu guys would rather leave uh dump their leader than lose their official status right yeah so, so there's there's still Kubuntu. It's just Kubuntu without Jonathan Riddle, who's kind of the mm -hmm. whole reason Kubuntu existed in the first place. Exactly, which is why I was always impressed with the Kubuntu team because I thought they did a great job. Um, they always seem to have, you know, at, at first it was within days of the Ubuntu release, the Kubuntu release was released, and then it was so seamless after that point. But I just it's. People quit taking your ball and going home. <laughs> it's the Linux way. It is. Yeah. yeah, I'm hoping we can get another 10 or 12 distros out of this one split. <laughs> because if there's one thing we need more of, it is choice in the Linux desktop environment. That's my yeah. platform, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> Croft Ubuntu coming to a distro near you soon. <laughs> Um, shifting gears slightly to a company that I used to like and now I don't anymore. HTC, I used to think made the best Android phones. Um, and I was actually a big fan of the HTC Sense UI. Uh, I know a lot of people weren't, uh, but I thought that they did a lot of enhancements to, to Android back before Android, uh, was mature. Now Lollipop, I like as a pure environment. I think yep. they've, they've filled in a lot of those gaps, but before that, Samsung and HTC and, uh, um, uh, I forget the, the, the other one. That was popular. They, they all had to step in and do these things, and I thought Sense did the best job of it. But over the last few years, HTC phones have dropped off in quality. The Sense UI has become clunky. And now, just another reason to hate them, they've taken it on themselves to serve you ads without bothering to need an app. Yep. Yeah. So uh, basically, they are pushing advertisement um, as part of like the custom theme. And um, so it's in much, the, so you would receive it like in much the same way you would like a text message. They're just like saying, Hey, here's an ad for whatever, because they gave us some money. So now we're going to show it to you and you have our phone. So you have no choice. Have fun viewing the ad. One and time, then, one yeah. time is all it would take for me to install cyanogen mod on my phone. That would be it. I would be done. Well, the ads don't come as text messages. The ads come in under their, oh, what's it called? Their sense 
Right, but he was saying just in in the same way that a text message would. It's an, an app yeah. that pops up. It's you know it becomes a notification, quote unquote, but not really. Mm-hmm. No, would it would where it shows up because I have an HTC M8. So what the native advertising that they're talking about is in two places. The first one is in you know how like on the Google Now launcher when you go to the far left panel you get the Google Now. Yep. In sense, it's there's I don't know what that's called, but it's it's where they have all of the different feed that you can go through. You'll see ads in that kind of like the Twitter ads, where it'll just be a you know oh you might want like you might like this, which is a little annoying but not too bad. The one that really lights me up when I see it is when they take over your lock panel with an ad. And it's not an ad that someone, I'm, I'm guessing that they didn't pay for, but it's saying like, um, because I have Yelp on my phone, I get pop-ups over my lock screen that say, you know, hey, it's nine o'clock. You hungry? Go eat at Joe's. So here's then, all kinds of reason that just flies all over me. Uh, HTC's already made their money from me. I have exactly. bought the phone. I bought their hardware. And I bought their software on that hardware, whether I bought it, uh, you know, through a, a subsidies, subsidized contract with, which is really a bad term because it's not subsidized, it's screwitized, um, through a, 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 a phone company or whether I just went to the store and said, I want that HTC phone right there. You've gotten all the money you deserve to get from me and to try mm-hmm. to wring a few more pennies out of me by stealing my time. That's it. That's all you, you are stealing my time. By making me read that, acknowledge it, and dismiss it, and and it's just it's it's reprehensible and it's wrong and it's it's inexcusable. There is no valid excuse, no business reason that this is an okay thing to do. It's it's horrible. There's um, one business reason: it makes them money. Yep, and they're hurting for money. HTC is in a bad. Then way. make better phones. Well, not just better phones. Make better choices. You know, the one of their HTC phones that had the fingerprint reader stored the fingerprints in clear text in a file that was globally readable. Really? Does that make, does that even sound like good practice? It's, it's, it's that old thing of, can we make it work? Yes, good. Ship it out the door. Yep. That's exactly what it was. Yep. So yeah, no, um, HTC is, is, Probably not going to get another penny from me after this last one. And the fact that, it, and I don't know who to blame for this next gripe of mine about HTC, if it's HTC or if it's Verizon, but they're both pissing me off. My phone was supposed to get Lollipop, full version of Lollipop, 5.1, whatever. I'm still not on it. I still am, you know, and except for the fact I've taken the remediation steps, stage fright can still totally blow my phone apart. Um, the fix is out there. It's on their other phones. Why isn't on this one? So you'll go buy another one. Yeah, and not an HTC. <laughs> yeah, I I would I would be on um you know on the web looking for ways to to rom that phone as soon as the show is over, if not before. I mean, the, oh, the I've, first I've... the first time they showed me an ad, that would have been the end of it for me. Well, the thing is, is I, I moved off of Sense a long time ago and put on uh, Google Now as my launcher. So that doesn't even, that, that doesn't affect me at all. 
Because if you remove sense as your default, you don't see any of it. It's just now the Google Now launcher doing all the work. Yeah, but that doesn't mean there's not tons of crappy code still in there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm very well aware of it. <laughs> I just haven't been able to find a way to ROM this particular phone because all of the, um, to do like cyanogen mod on it, they all need to have pre lollipop on the phone in order to do it. Well, since I moved to lollipop, it's locked up because of that, uh, the security setting that Verizon uses to lock that phone. Mm. Bummer. Yeah. I, I, I'm, as I, I think I've mentioned it on the show before, I'm, I'm in the market for a new phone. I, I'll buy one, you know, pretty soon. I've saved up my pennies and I've pretty much decided I can't buy from an American company. I just, there just isn't one that is making a good product with trustworthy software on it. So I'm going to have to go with, you know, somebody straight out of Korea or China and have it boot up with a with a foreign language boot screen, um, just to be able to to get a phone that I think is of decent quality, and it, and that frustrates me as a patriotic red blooded American. You know, we freaking invented this, most of this technology, but we're we're so caught up in trying to to make a buck instead of making a product that we're we're just not doing a good job of it anymore. It frustrates me. What about the Motorola one? That's a good phone. It's it's an okay phone. Uh, the the phone is okay. The hardware is adequate. The software, I'm not I'm not fond of of their customizations. Uh, is, it, of course, is that the OnePlus? Uh, no, no. The OnePlus is made by OnePlus. That's the name of the company. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. And the OnePlus and two is Korean, garbage. I think. Yeah. Did you guys look at the OnePlus two? The specs on that? It, well, I wouldn't call it garbage. It's just uh, it didn't excite me. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess I can't call it garbage either, but they, you know, no NFC. Uh, it's just like, really? Why would you yeah. rip out things that are being used? So they can sell it for 300 bucks. Well, yeah. I, I suppose. They had to pay the license to get the USB Type-C on there, and yeah. so they had to make compromises. That you know, we've talked about this before. It's the thing is that the American consumer and more and more the global consumer, we want everything for nothing, um, and so companies have to make trade offs. And they, they, there's like four ways they can make a trade off: either in the hardware, the software, uh, the trustware, or the the wetware. Right? They can treat their employees like crap. Um, and so you get a a cheap phone that was put together by a a, a Vietnamese seven year old girl. Um, you know, but it's high quality and it's got good software on it. So, you know, if you want something for nothing, compromises have to be made somewhere. Have you thought about going back to the old Nexus? I, you know, I've thought about lots of things. The, the new, the new Nexus six, uh, line, the current Nexus six line, just meh, it doesn't impress me. There, there are rumors of a second Nexus five. I'll probably check that out, but I don't want to wait till Christmas just because I'm waiting for the next best thing. You yeah. know, if you if you're always waiting for the next best thing, you're never going to buy anything. So hurry up and buy it so they can come out with the models you really want and the rest <laughs> right. of the people can be happy. Yeah. Take so one they're all just the, waiting. Has Mark bought a phone yet? No. All right, we can't release yet. Take one wait. for the internet, Mark. Uh, there's a website hasmarkbuttaphoneyet.com and it just displays yes or no, and as soon as that goes to yes, then new phones will be released. Uh, and you haven't well, seen the markphonepurchaserumors.com? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I think it's interesting that the Nexus, when you go over to the Nexus website, that they have the 5 still available. Yeah. And it's a fine phone, except it's the one I have. Why would I want to buy another thing that I have? Yeah. It it just surprises me. Sorry, guys. <laughs> it was a very urgent call. Yeah. Well, I'm on call this week, so... <laughs> All right. Well, it's about time for us to wrap up anyway. So, Seth, let's move on to your uh, This Week in History. Okay. Not all history is a success. Case in point, uh, August the 21st, 1995, Nintendo released the Virtual Boy in North America, the stilt-legged <laughs> tabletop gaming console, which offered a unique red stereoscopic 3D display, attempted to ride a wave of popular interest in virtual reality, and that wave of popular interest crashed into the cliffs of, yeah. It made everybody either get a migraine or puke or both. Yeah. Yeah. So but that was this week in history, uh, 20 years ago. And you know who hasn't learned from that? Modern people trying to do VR because it still either gives you a headache or makes you want to puke. Yep. Yep. So anyway, All right. that's, that's this <laughs> week in history. That. So Seth, what do you have for your uh, dev slash random this week? Okay, I've, I've been saving this one for a while. This is some uh, World War II trivia for you here. Um, this is an IPW and in and prisoner of war interrogation from world war ii um there was this gi in europe who this intelligence officer gave him this report and told him to keep hold of it uh but then he never saw that intelligence officer again so 70 years later he still had it and you can actually scroll down this and actually read it and it's just basically an intelligence officer kind of took this told the story of this german POW and kind of what happened. And it's just neat history that isn't going to change anything, but it's just kind of something cool to read. So if you want to take a few minutes and read um, a POW story about the close of World War II in Europe, check out this businessinsider.com article. And that's got to be a good random topic for us yeah. to close the show out with. You know, the just glancing at this, the, it seems true that as terrible as this guy's experience was, the POWs toward the end of the war, the the Nazi POWs had it really good, yeah. Uh, compared to the rest of the Nazi army, you know, who was was just being slaughtered left and right because they didn't have what they needed, and their leadership was fragmented, and and yeah, I mean, it was actually a good thing to be a, a POW in an American uh, custody toward the end of the war. Yeah, lots of people on the German Eastern Front. They would, they would leave, they would abandon the Eastern Front and get across Europe as fast as they can so they could surrender to the Americans, uh, rather yeah. than the Russians. Yeah, don't so. surrender to the Russians. <laughs> they knew <laughs> yeah. that was a bad thing. Yeah. They thought, guys, we pissed the Russians off too much to <laughs> give them a chance to pay back. So. Good stuff. And that's, you know, that's Seth's, uh, digital archaeology at work. Yeah. Uh, so this is the part of the show where I tell you, how you can and why you should contact us. Go to elementop.com, click the Contact Us button at the top of the page, uh, send us an email to edl at elementop.com, or call us at 559-IAM-OP and uh, leave us a voicemail. We encourage you to do these things because, as I've said so many times before, we do this show for you. Uh, Seth and Chris and I could get together and pontificate without all the expensive gear and without uh, recording and without 
editing and production. We do this for you because we we hope that we produce something that is entertaining and educational um, and motivating and, you know, uh, uh, hopefully a bright spot in your day. And we need you to tell us how to do that better. You know, I love getting emails that say, great job, guys, keep up the, the good work. But I also love it when, when I get a substantive complaint, you know, not just a random, I don't like this, get off my lawn complaint. But, you know, you guys did this or you're doing this and it, the show would be better if, because as I've said so many times before, you drive this show. You drive what we do. We drive what we talk about. We drive to, to some extent how we do it. So please give us some feedback. Let us know how we're doing. Uh, if you like it, tell other people about it. If you don't like it, tell me about it. Uh, but we, uh, we look forward to having you here. Thank you for sticking with us for yet another hour and a half show. Um, Chris, Seth, thank you for, for hanging out, for being the best uh, podcast uh, host that I can afford on my budget. And uh, <laughs> we look forward to seeing you back next week. But for now, that ends this episode of Everyday Links. Everyday Links.